0: Eagle Steel soars high-igniting Dallas stars fire. Our steel slices like blades, unbreakable as nails. For 36 unbeatable years, we've fueled success with dependable steel. Contact Eagle Steel today and let's build something great together.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome in Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington. Joined by my old buddies Evan Grant and David Moore, everybody's at home. So this is nice to have everybody home and, and uh, not on the road for a change. Um, how we doing? Evan?
2: We're great. We're great. Dog food came this morning, so the dogs were going crazy when the dog food arrived um, <laughs> during our pre-show meeting. And now I think we've got them all situated, so everything's good here. That's great to hear. Yeah, David, get about- excited.
0: Yeah. How about you, David? Uh, dogs were fed well before the taping of this broadcast began. Uh, well, you're a professional next to me. He's lying right next to me asleep, (laughs) which I hope is not a precursor for whoever chooses to listen to this
1: podcast. This. Oh no, nothing like that. Nothing like that. No, I can tell you boys, I I was just out in Seattle and, and for like the, I don't know the two dozen times I've been to Seattle in my life. It is yet to rain on me there. Uh, Every day is a sunny day when I'm in Seattle. I got to tell you, there are a few places I go that I enjoy more than that. Uh, it, is a, it is a terrific place. I'd love to go down to the Pike Street Market and, uh, and check out all of that. Always something
0: fun to find down there. Uh, great place to go. You get in there and throw the fish around with the fishmongers.
1: I did not. Uh, no, I did not throw. I, as a matter of fact, while well, I was, I, I, I could basically just had to kind of run through there one day because the. sat your game. head while they're well, flying over you. Yeah, the game was you know early on Saturday, and so I didn't get to spend as much time down there as I would have liked. You know, there's like, what's so crazy about that? down there's all these cubbies and warrens in there. You know, you're walking around in there, and then there's steps going down to this and steps going up to that, and uh, it's just uh, such a uh, a really fantastic place to go. I, I just love it. And, and Debbie has gone with me. It has never rained on me, but it has snowed on me in Seattle. We went there for a, a Rangers opener once. And I had to uh, buy Debbie a blanket to sit in the uh, stands at the game. Cause it was so cold,
0: but uh, yeah, it's know. a great city. The, the one thing though, where with even as far as technology has advanced on a city like Seattle, where it's stacked on top of itself and, Original Seattle was destroyed in a fire. So it's kind of like below the city anyway. But the way it's built, you'll put in some, you'll put in an address on some place to go for a restaurant or something. It'll say, you're here. And it's like, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm like standing in the middle. And it's either like below you, like, you know, two blocks straight below you or two, you know, one above you. Yeah. It
1: doesn't help that Fifth hangs a a do right all of a sudden. You're on Fifth and all of a sudden it turns. Why, why? You can't do this. You can't turn streets. That's not yeah. fair. You it's a great city, though. Gorgeous city. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really did enjoy that. All right, let's get going here. Uh, so the Stars have made the Western Conference Finals. Uh, they uh, be- they finally shut down Seattle uh, at the AAC on Monday night, 2-1. to one. Uh, that, that game got a little jittery there at the very end. Uh, the Stars had uh, taken a 2-0 lead. Uh, the Kraken pulled a goalie, and, uh, and they did indeed get a goal with, I believe, 20 seconds left, uh, and then uh, uh, they finally put the game away. Uh, that was uh, quite a bounce back for Jake Ottinger, uh, the, the star's young goalie, pretty dynamic player at times. He, although he was pulled twice in this series, he, he was pulled in Seattle in the middle of the second period uh, when he wasn't looking very good. He gave up four goals. Uh, he's had his moments like that where he has not looked really good, uh, but his uh, record now after a loss is, I believe, 24-2-3. and three. Uh, He's been almost unbeatable after a loss. Uh, and, and if you couple that with the fact that the Stars have not lost two games in a row in the playoffs so far, halfway through the playoffs, if they're going to make it to the Stanley Cup Finals, um, that bodes pretty well for them going forward. Uh, Pete DeBoer uh, has been very positive in sticking with his players and uh, and the guys. Uh, he has a much more even hand uh, than uh, Rick Bonus did uh, with the lineup and the, and, and how, he, how he handles it. Um, it's much more of a Ron Washington kind of approach. Uh, if everybody remembers that. that He set a lineup in April and it was on cruise control pretty much after that. Uh, That's a little bit of what uh, Pete DeVore has done. I imagine the players really prefer that, to know where they're always going to be. And he has rewarded them uh, for that. Uh, So they're, they're playing really well right now. I, 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 you know, they're going to have to step it up a little bit here though. they got their intensity level is not always what it should be in my estimation, Mr. Hockey. Uh, they, uh, they were a more talented team, I think, than the Kraken or the Wild. Uh, and they certainly did shut down the Wild uh, and, and win those last three games of that series. Uh, the the Kraken was a better team than the Wild. Obviously, they showed that in beating Colorado in the first round, uh, upsetting the defending uh, Stanley Cup champs. Uh, but uh, they they just seem to, to kind of... Play to the to the level of their competition a little bit. They 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 just don't seem to play with a sense of urgency all the time. There there have been times in uh, in the playoffs where they have come out and uh, and really uh, uh, you know put shots on goal. But if you look at like the uh, game six in Seattle, uh, when by the time uh, Seattle had scored four four uh, goals, uh, they were out. They'd been outshot fourteen to two. Now that. Shots on goals, kind of sometimes an overrated stat, you know, because the shots aren't really, you know, legitimate ones. And then it's it's not that much to worry about. But when it's fourteen to two and you're down four to nothing, that kind of indicates that uh, that maybe you need to ramp it up a little bit here. Uh, And they don't always do that. Uh, So we'll see how they respond uh, going forward. I I I think they have a great chance uh, to to go all the way, uh, especially since some of the teams that were like Edmonton that's now out Las Vegas, beat them. They had a, a, the highest scoring team in the, in the league, uh, during the regular season, but we know that those regular season stats don't always mean so much. Just ask the Boston Bruins about that. They had the best record, best regular season record in the history of the NHL. And they were eliminated in the first round old stars, coach Jim Montgomery out, uh, in that first round. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they, they do going forward. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm I'm uh, I'm I, I'm I'm thinking that uh, this is like I said, this is a team that has real possibilities. Uh, but it's just a question of of what they what they put on the ice, right? And that what we say.
0: Well, Ottinger's is really unusual to me from the standpoint of he can be so dominant, not just in a game, but a series. But rarely do you see a player be as dominant as him, who will have a game like he has in Game Six, and everyone just kind of goes, "Eh, let's take him out." He just doesn't have it today. We'll, we'll put him back in the next game, and you know normally you don't see that sort of swing in a player that he- has and can be as dominant as Ottinger has. But he's but he's clearly shown that's part of his makeup, right? I mean, when things kind of unravel on him a bit, it's like, well, okay. Uh, Let's just take him out here, but we know it's not going to carry over with him. Uh, and, and, you know, the the record you cited shows that. I mean, normally getting pulled twice in a series before game seven and then to have the sort of performance he had in game seven, uh, like you say, I mean, they didn't even score until the final 17 seconds and they had a two-goal lead at that point. So... Uh, He's the key. I mean that you know, offensively they're playing. I mean, what Rupe Hints is doing in, in this postseason run is, is pretty impressive. Uh, but it seems like every game that they win, th- there is a different guy. Uh, you know, when Miro was out, you noticed what his contribution was, and then see what happened when he came back after he missed the game and how dominant he was in that game. So they're they're getting, you know, contributions. Uh, just across the board, which you need to do. But the the other thing that strikes me about this, too, is, and you said it, it's like, well, they're halfway there. Halfway there, it's like exhausting watching these games. I mean, there's 13 games to this point. Uh, Every game, by and large, not every game. There have been a few more blowouts in, in the postseason this year than hockey normally has. But still, Eight out of every ten games, or nine out of every every ten games, are just so intense. And uh, just looking up and going, "Wow, they're only halfway there." It seems like they It seems like this playoff run started two months ago. Well, and it's
1: like, and Tim Callishaw pointed out today in his column, you know, the thing about hockey too is that just anything can happen at any time. It, it's yep. you know the, the capacity for uh, a, a fluke. Horrific error is tremendous, right? You you know, like isa Lindell is, is skating backwards and falls in, in game six and, and and leaves uh you know Ottinger open
0: for an easy goal. So
1: you know, how, how often does that kind of thing happen? You
0: know, and so it it is crazy. More than any other sport, it's subjected to random occurrences. Yes, I think uh, where so. you can, you can control a period or a you know even a a prolonged stretch and some random circumstance that has nothing to do with skill. Uh, you know. Oh, absolutely. I think it's more, more fluky stuff.
1: And I will say, before we get out of this uh, star segment, I, I want to do say what you were just saying about Jake Ottinger, you know, it used to be, you know, in the playoffs, everybody counted on having a great goalie, right? You know, you, yeah. you could not win a Stanley cup final without a great goalie. Well, he might be the most talented goalie left in the playoffs. Uh-huh. And you could yep. have said that last round uh, he played, he was one of the few goalies. I think there was only a handful that played in over 65 games during the regular season. I asked the question of, is it possible that maybe just a little gassed and, and I was told, no, <clears throat> excuse me, that that's not the, that's not the issue with him. He's young. He's strong. He, that's not a, a real problem for him. Um, he is a, a, the better goalie in, in this series going forward. So yeah, I do think he's the key to this. That sounds like a, that's a, a cliche in hockey, but it's it's not quite the same as it used to be. So I think if he if he could, I'm not going to ask him to play at this level where he's going to shut a team down basically for the whole game because that was not an, an even goal, right? It was it was a six on five. When, yeah. when when they finally got their goal, so I mean he played unbelievably well uh, Monday night. So if if he's got somewhere between those two things, somewhere between six. In game seven, if he can stick to that, I think the Stars' chances are very good. All right, that's going to do it for our Stars talk. Now we're going to move over to the Rangers, uh, which uh, their big news apparently is that, as we're taping this on Tuesday morning, that Corey Seager will be back in the lineup uh, Tuesday night. So, Evan – what kind of impact will this make on the lineup? How, first of all, will it change the lineup? Who's going to be where? Where where will Ezekiel Duran go? And uh, and let's talk also, obviously, about uh, what this has meant to the club that they have performed so well offensively without him.
2: Well, last night aside, last night's 12 nothing loss aside, this offense has performed really well without Corey Seager. Um, and I think that that's a win-win for the Rangers lineup overall and maybe for Seager's psyche. I I felt like there were times last year, Kevin, um, when the situation was also new to Seager and he was being looked at as the guy to carry the offense, that it occasionally became an uncomfortable situation for him. I, I think already this year we've seen a guy who feels much more comfortable in his surroundings, and I think that's led to the hot start that he had before he got hurt, and I think the fact that the Rangers have averaged six runs a game in his absence and that guys showed a willingness to pass the baton and let the next guy move move the guys over and that you had five different guys post 800 or better OPSs in his absence just means that he can kind of come back into the lineup as one of the guys and not the guy. Um, and I, I, I think that just allows him to relax all that much more and, and and maybe, you know, perform at the same levels that he did in L.A. when he was truly just one of the guys in that lineup. So I, I think that's the big takeaway from from his time away. I think most of the other answers are fairly obvious. Seeger's clearly going to go back into the number two spot. Uh, and that means that the Rangers rotation of the four guys that they've, run through there who, you know, the number two spot didn't produce anywhere near Corey Seager levels in his absence. That wasn't to be expected, but you'll, whether you have Robbie Grossman or Ezekiel Duran or Josh Smith um, or Travis Jankowski, when he gets back from his hamstring injury in a lineup, they're all going to be hitting in the bottom half of the lineup. The top, I'd say the top six spots in this lineup are pretty much etched in stone. Um, with the one exception being, you know, that Heim is hitting six, and there are going to be days when he doesn't catch to manage his workload a little bit. But now you're talking about a bottom third of the lineup that's gonna, it's gonna include um, Ezekiel Duran or Robbie Grossman in left field, and probably the other one at uh, at DH depending on the day, um, and you're gonna have. Leody Tavares in, in center field. And so you're gonna have some pop in the bottom of the order, some I think some savviness uh from Grossman, and you're gonna have some speed from Tavares. And so this was the problem with the Rangers lineup all last year. Look, the top three, top four, it was formidable. Um with the with the ascent of, of Nathaniel Lowe and and the, the continued growth of Adolis Garcia, but once you got past those first four, it was like easy cruising for two innings. So I don't think there's going to be easy innings for pitchers uh, very regularly as they face the Rangers now.
1: So let me ask you this then. So Mitch Garver is not going to come back until June. Uh, and when he does, I guess the intimation is that he would catch a couple of games a week and then DH after that. So what happens to Robbie Grossman at that point?
2: Well, I, I, I mean, I think you could end up with a situation where you, you, know, you could have Grossman – almost in a platoon situation with Duran where um, Duran uh, and Grossman are alternating in left field, depending on who on, on whether the pitchers is a righty or a lefty um, I, there's we're talking. I don't think that the uh, Garver would be back until let's say the second week of June. Um, that's a long time from now, you know, and we saw a rash of injuries two weeks ago. And so, uh, for me to sit here and say that that lineup's going to be intact come, come two weeks from now, I'd be, I'd be hard pressed to, to say that, but if everybody's there and the Rangers have an abundance of, of players and, and they've, they've got a little bit of a, of a wealth of, of depth where it comes to left field um, they'll figure that out. And if it means that Duran plays some left field and also does some, some utility guy stuff, you know, He's just won that spot over Josh Smith at this point. And uh, I think that you're also going to see Duran play a little bit more shortstop here in the next couple of weeks as Seager more slowly breaks back into the position. He'll DH a little bit and he'll play shortstop. And the Rangers just have the ability to kind of manage that to optimize both guys, both Seager's recovery and his, his acclimation back into playing every day because of how well Duran has played.
1: Yeah, the the uh, the growth of uh, of Duran this spring to me has been, you know, outside of the pitching, really maybe the, the Rangers' biggest story, uh, because not only is he really playing well, hitting really well, he showed he can play shortstop, uh, maybe not over an extended period of time, but that was not in his toolkit at all. I mean, they, they were not planning on him playing any shortstop. That was not any of the situation with him. So now with him, the ability for him to play left field and shortstop when Seager is out, it's like all of a sudden it was like a, a big gift just bestowed upon the Rangers this spring. The, the, you, you basically solved two th- two things here, you, the backup shortstop and your left fielder. I mean, I, I don't know how, how Bruce Bochy could have gotten a bigger gift than that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think it's been a, I think it's been a big plus, but I, I still think it's probably been for me the second biggest development um, on that side of the ball. Look, the pitching staff has been exactly what was advertised. The starting rotation has been deep and has done its job um, to the levels that I think were were advertised by Chris Young. But I do think that the continued growth or the big step forward by Jonah Haim offensively, and he has just become an offensive force behind the play, uh, behind the plate, and the best, you know, the he's got the reputation of being the best framer in baseball. It's made him probably the second best catcher in baseball at the moment. You know, I, you could, Atlanta, Sean Murphy probably takes the title as number one, but, He's certainly performed on the same level as anybody else in baseball. And I know Philadelphia's JP Real Muto is JT Real Muto is considered the best catcher on the planet. But right now, Jonah Heim has played at a level above that. And so I catching is so thin in this game. If you get a legitimate frontline catcher, something the Rangers really haven't had in 20 years, um, you're ahead of the game. I think the one question I've got is Haim's on 135 start pace right now. Uh, he did wear down in the second half last year. I think he took some steps to get himself in a better position for this year. But it will be important once Garver gets back that the Rangers can kind of, if they can kind of blend him in a couple days a week to give Haim a little bit more freshness as the season wears on and they're going to start going to more outdoor parks where there's going to be a, some heat factor involved and that's going to take a toll on the body as well. I do think the shortness of the games, you know, the fact that the, the games overall are about 30 minutes shorter and the fact that the Rangers pitching is so much better. So if you, if you break it down, how much time he's squatting in that chunk of 30 minutes, how much that has been removed? I think that's been a huge plus for him.
0: Has All he right. reached or exceeded his talent ceiling that many envisioned as much or more so than any player on the roster?
2: Yeah, I would think so. Um,
1: I, I don't well, think you know, he, he was considered like- a he was considered a big time prospect uh, catcher. Heim? I mean, well, I mean, not maybe a big time. I think he was considered a good prospect when the Rangers made that trade. Uh, and that was the Elvis Andrews trade. I think There was some feeling that yeah, this guy really got an upside, but I, but I'm not not hitting three hundred. I'm not saying any of
2: that. Look, he was uh, he was on his third organization when he came here. He was a guy who was considered maybe a really good framer, and there there were questions about how much he'd be able to hit, but that he did have power. He's eliminated a lot of a, a lot of the holes in his offensive game, and I think he has toned up his body enough that you, you know he has. He has the durability to potentially start more than hundred games back there. Well, when I, the, you're
0: ranking the most, like the, this first quarter of the season, the the most valuable players, if you were well, where would you put him in that conversation?
2: I think I, I think he, Simeon, and Uvaldi are, are the the guys that are in the middle of that conversation. Um, Simeon's been exceptionally consistent all year. Uh, Haim has taken a huge step forward as an everyday player. And Yovally really has the last three or four starts have been out out of this world. But beyond that, I think Nathan has had a real impact on the development of other starters in the rotation. You know, we talked to Magmatics about Nate's involvement last week. Talked to John Gray about Nate's involvement last week, and both sung really high praises for how invested he is in the other pitchers. And so, you know, if you if you go to places like Baseball reference and look at the Rangers' wars. If you want to buy into war. I think I think it does go Simeon Heim Yavaldi right now.
1: the The thing about uh, the catch position, back to our original point, uh, was that in the point that you made is that the Rangers catching was at least you know on par with anybody else's, especially defensively, because of what Heim did and what he gave you offensively, because he had a little pop was certainly a little extra. You know, my, my case for Duran is that, you know, they didn't have left field was a black hole. And so they raised the level of, of left field so much this year. And, the, and now you've got a legitimate backup shortstop. And so that's that's two things solved. But, I, but I'm with you on, on Jonah Hyman, how how well he's playing. And I'm, I am interested in seeing what, what uh, happens with this because he, he is playing too much right now uh, for what catchers play these days. And, and he is four, and I think that, that makes a, a big difference when you're a big catcher trying to do that. It's, it, the up and down is a, a lot more strenuous than it is for a guy who's about you know, four or five inches shorter. So uh, uh, it, you know, Mitch Garver is just going to have to stay healthy. I mean, uh, he's just been uh, you know, a cipher, basically, here in, in the uh, season and a quarter that he's been here he's going to have to be healthy enough to play, you know, two games a week, uh, at catcher, and then DH the rest of the time. And that, and to me, that's such a, um, a forgotten part of all this is that, you know, this is a guy who once hit, what, 30 home runs as a catcher and uh, has, has been very good offensively. Uh, if you could get him just to do that in DH for you, plus what Grossman has, has been bringing as, as well, then, then yeah, I think this this club has as good an offense as anybody in baseball, uh, you know, except for maybe Tampa Bay, which has put up astronomical numbers so far. Uh, but still, uh, it's remarkable to see that. So it it, it, and it sounds kind of so. Then it sounds stupid to say. Then why do you need more? Said, well, you need more because you need to get that from from the catching position to enable Heim to get some, a few days off. I, I'm just not willing to think that seeing what the drop-off was last year, that he got himself in so much better shape that he can handle that now. I mean, ideally what for him uh, would you think to start, uh, you know, uh, is 100 games, uh, 110 games, you know, is that that pretty much a max level?
2: I would have thought that, I, I think, you know, in talking with the Rangers, their their goal for him would have been <laughs> right around 100 games started. But I, I do also think, that the the improved physical condition and the, the eating program he got himself onto is worth a few starts and a few and, and a little bit more freshness. I think the, the the reduction in the game times and I'm having a hard time kind of expanding on this idea that let's say game times are, are thirty minutes less than they were a year ago. Well, the Rangers right. pitching is also a whole lot better than it was a year ago. So it's not like it was 15 minutes on one side and 15 on the other. The Rangers are spending a whole lot less time compared to other teams behind the plate. And because of that, I mean, there's some, and the Rangers are tracking all this. The Rangers are tracking time on the field in the squatting position, and he has saved himself some significant wear and tear. So some of that is going to be uncharted just because, Yeah, We've taken that much out of the game. I don't think he's – I don't think even with, you know, a dozen starts or so at DH, do I want to press 135 starts with him, particularly if you've got aims of making a playoff run here because now you're getting into, you know, much bigger workloads. It would be great if Mitch Garver could take on come June – one to two starts per week and, and, and make sure that Heim doesn't get, you know, I think at one point in time he played like 13 straight games, whether it was behind the plate or, or at DH. And those are the kinds of things, those long stretches are the kinds of things I think that, that wear guys out because you, you go through, you know, even with all the recovery methods, you go through a situation where you go night game and then end up playing a day game on a getaway day, and then get on a plane and travel, it's an exhausting stretch, and and it does take some time to recover from.
0: I think that's a fascinating point about the reduction in game time and how that lessens the wear and tear, specifically on that position that maybe a lot of people didn't think about or were talking about, you know, when, when this happened. And, and I go back to back, you know, back in the NBA before load management took over, where you would just sit players for a game. I remember talking to coaches and they'll say, uh, well, look, I, I want my star player to average two minutes less a game this year. And when he first started, I'll, I'll shrug and I'll go like two minutes. So what they said, well, two minutes over the course of a season is four games that's four fewer games of wear and tear on the body that has to have a positive impact. And and really it's the same at the catching position more so than any other position in baseball, I would say that benefits from this.
2: And I think we are seeing that. Like I just looked at innings caught and games played for guys and it does feel like guys are on guys as a whole are on higher paces for innings caught this year just because I think everybody has quickly realized through spring training and into the season that games are shorter and there is less wear and tear. And they're being catchers are being honest with managers about how worn down they are versus, versus the past years. All right, let, let's look at
1: something else here, uh, veer off from the catching back to pitching, which is still the Rangers' problem at the back of the bullpen. Um, I just saw a stat that showed that... Uh, that uh, save percentages were down from 67% last year to 61% this year. And when they talked to some relievers about that, they said, well, we're not getting enough time to just stand there and gather ourselves. And, and, and before we throw a pitch and, you know, I got to tell you, if that really is the issue here, and that is really the problem behind this, first of all, one, it should make the Rangers feel a little bit better than everybody else is struggling a little bit too with their bullpens. But secondly, come on. I, I, I have no sympathy whatsoever for these guys and, and, and these, these situations about when they, because uh, I've seen, it wasn't just pictures, it's even some hitters have complained about that and saying, I'm just not getting enough time to really think about things. It's like, what were they thinking about in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s? I mean, I, you know, this whole thing about this was all on y'all. Y'all all all got into this situation where y'all started grinding down here and stepping out and readjusting your gloves and standing on the mound and staring in at the catcher. I got no sympathy for you.
2: Hey, and there's there's no excuses. And maybe save percentages will be down, you know, going forward somewhat. But the adjustment that pitchers are going to have to make, I will go back to something that John Wetland once said as a closer that that stuck with me, and that is – look, my third best pitch with 100% conviction is going to be a better pitch than my best pitch with 60% conviction. And my point being, the best closers are going to have conviction in the next pitch they want to throw the second that throw that, that ball leaves their hand. They know how they want to attack these hitters. They've got more information than they ever had before compressed into, into smaller bits. And so the best pitchers... Are going to find routines within that eight seconds to allow them to reset. You know they don't have to go through a set of signs. They're getting they're getting what they want to throw in their ear. Guys can go to the, the handheld pitch com and dictate what they want to throw to the catchers. So it there may be some there may be some adjustment period here for some of those guys. And I I also think look save percentages may be down a little bit too because the shift has taken. Uh, the shift has eliminated some outs that uh, that were there the last few years, and so there are more balls in play that are getting through for hits. Um, I do not, and I got into a big Twitter argument. I found myself in a big Twitter argument the other day. With you Jeff always Fry. find
0: yourself in a big Twitter argument. But go I, ahead. I don't know. For well, a specific one. You're a Twitter bully.
2: Jeff Fry has this whole shtick going with she gone. And he's created a hashtag and he's, he's going off and off on, he's coming across as just the bitter old ball player. You know, in my day, they did it this way. They did it that way. And I got into a big argument with him. and I'm like, man, nobody misses the 27 minutes of standing around. And, wow. and you can tell me that they didn't have a clock in your day and all this other stuff. But dude, when you played, it was a different game than when your father played. And it, it, it operated at a different level. So don't tell me that your era of baseball was the perfect era. Well, well that
1: continues to evolve. Well, the thing is about it to me is that Jeff Fry, your era ruined baseball. Because before that, we had games that were two hours and, and, and two and a half hours. Then all of a sudden, they grew to three hours and three and a half hours. And frankly, there were four-hour games, uh, you know, that were being played. It was ridiculous. Four-hour, nine-inning games is ridiculous when you're playing 162 games a year. And it was because of these guys standing out. In the old days, if you, if you stepped out too much, you know, Bob Gibson was going to throw a ball into your chin. You know, that was a deal. Get in the box and let's go. And that's the way baseball policed itself. Well, baseball stopped policing itself. And, and that's why it was led to this. And it led to, uh, you know, the commissioner and, and other people saying, hey, we got to change this because fans are drifting away from us here. And the sport has gotten out of out of control. And so they took control of it. I think this is the best thing that's happened in baseball, I, you know, I don't know, in the last 20 years. I, I,
2: I think it's great. I'm no fan of commissioners. Nobody roots for for guys in suits. We all have issues with Rob Manfred's delivery and his his stiltedness, and and you know he is basically an advocate for ownership. But this rule, uh, this rule addendum that they've made over the course of this year has been an improvement on the game. The game is a better product. And the last thing I would just say on this, and I know we've gotten off topic, the last thing I would say on this is my, my advice to former baseball players is this. Enjoy the time that you played, have fond memories of it, and do everything you can to help grow the next generation of players. And that does not include sitting back and saying, ah, the game's not as good as it was when I was a, a player. These guys are, are better athletes than you were they're they're skilled at hitting a harder harder pitches focus on that focus on how much better the game gets and how the game continues to grow that i think is the is the is the former player's duty to the game and the fandom don't tell us how crappy it is now there's yeah. always something enjoyable to find about the game
1: I don't know the, the to me I guess the issue with players and look I, I've said this before I didn't really have a, a problem myself with the length of the games unless I'm on deadline uh, otherwise I, I like baseball I like watching it it was okay it was it was fine but but it was just the 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 quality of the game the the pace of it not the length of it so much it was just the pace of the game it slowed down so much it 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 had gotten brutal between the between the hitter and the pitcher both of them taking too long, uh, and stepping out, staring in all of that kind of stuff. And it's just been remarkable to me to see that how that is picked up. And I think it has improved the quality of the game. I'm glad that they're still monitoring things, uh, and they're still seeing the impact of what all these things mean. That's, this is all a good thing, but, uh, I'm giving MLB all the credit in the world for amping this up. So Evan, uh, uh, so now we've seen Cody Bradford come up and pitch and get a little overwhelmed in his first start. I, w- I wanted to ask you really quickly: what do you think is uh, is there any kind of internal answer for the Rangers' pitching needs at this point? Because uh, I think maybe that was just kind of like a, a one off, as you pointed out. What's going to be the deal going forward?
2: Yeah, you know, I I, I could see them uh, I t- today, you know, they'll they'll move. Bradford, in all likelihood, back to Triple-A Round Rock and activate Seeger, Or if they make a pair of moves, like if they activate Seeger and and let and send Huff back to Triple-A, which they should probably do, and then make a pitching move. You know, the guys, I, I still wonder, Joe Barlow has had some effectiveness at the big league level, and he's on the 40-man roster. Um, I think you've got to use the rest of this month to get a look at some of those guys who were, internal potential internal options. Um, but come the 1st of June, you know, you've got to start exploring the trade market. And I think when I looked at the Rangers, the Rangers, Pythagorean record, uh, when I looked at it yesterday, I think it was supposed to be 28 and 12 based on their run differential. um, yeah, it's 20-13 it's this year based on, on run differential. And so it's clear they've allowed some games to get away from them. And as good a start as they're off to, uh, they could be off to a better start. And you don't want to say, ah, it's okay. You know, we're off to a good enough start. Good enough is never good enough. So the Rangers need to be working on addressing this. And I, I, I think that once the market becomes more of a two-way street. I think they'll be proactive there.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be talking about that when the, uh, when the time comes and gets closer to that, of course, I've been banging on the door about uh, making deals for, I don't know. It seems like the whole season of their pitching stuff, but uh, Chris Young, don't, he won't listen to me. I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't get it. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment. We're going to move over and talk about the Cowboys. Now, my gosh, The schedule release came out. Oh my gosh! I I I was who knew who they were going to play. Oh my gosh! All those teams they were playing in in, in seventeen games too. Holy cow! I just I wasn't expecting that. I thought maybe there might be fourteen or fifteen this year, but not seventeen. And then you know that they played they played everybody from the the NFC East
0: again twice even. Oh my gosh! Revelation after revelation. It it is comical because. By the time, actually before the final game of the regular season in January was done, uh, you knew at least 16 of the 17 opponents they were going to face. And then by the end of that Sunday, the last day of the regular season, you knew all 17 opponents. You knew what their record was this past season. You knew whether or not they were a playoff team or not. And so you had all of the basic information. And even though it's all there, just the fact to see what the order is, the way it mesmerizes people and they treat it like it's something they've never seen or thought of before is, is really interesting and just speaks again to the, the NFL's manipulation and promotion of its product in a way to always get the maximum bang. Yeah, they do that.
1: They do that very well. Yeah. Um, can you imagine Jerry Jones being a baseball owner or a basketball owner? You know, it, it just wouldn't it wouldn't have played the same. You know, he, he, uh, could, because that just fits right in with Jerry, the PT Barnum aspect of all of of all of this and and what he does. Uh, because you know, Jerry loves steel steal headlines, uh, and, and you know, during the World Series or or whatever else is going on, for Jerry to pop something out there that kind of tries to command a little interest. You know. It's yeah. one of the reasons why Jerry doesn't even really mind being criticized too much because at least it's publicity. To at him. he's
0: fine being criticized. Yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. A- and again, this, it, but this gets back to the differences in the sports we've talked about before. It's, it's the sheer volume, right? I mean, one NFL game is the equivalent, cloak. It, it was easier to say this when they're 16, the 17 throw it right. off, but just a percentage. But basically, one NFL game is the equivalent of 10 major league baseball games or five hockey or NBA games. You know, so uh just the the scale, the proportion is different. And so that is it's a little easier it's easier to focus on a more easier to focus on a 17 game schedule versus 82 or 162.
2: Well, every I mean every game is an event. It's a it's a it's yes. event it, it's not so much a schedule, it's events. And um, the NFL has the one advantage over the NBA and, and major league baseball on the scheduling in that there is, you know, you don't play every opponent, um, in your league. So there is that, that mystery, which of course is solved on the last day of the year when you know your division opponents and home and road. I just think it, it is, you know, what the NFL does really well because the sport can kind of create these short attention span bursts, um, because uh, for the casual fan, five days out of the week, they don't have to pay attention to the news. You know, they pay attention one day, uh, they watch the game, they follow up the next day, and then they can move on. And and so one day for a schedule release, they can commit their whole day to, to the schedule. And what I find just fascinating, or found more fascinating this year was, that I don't know if it had been as prevalent in years past, David, but the leaks, the quote-unquote leaks on the schedule as the day went on towards the 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. television show to unveil the schedule, I found that just, again, a master stroke of, like, well, let's take this from a 9 o'clock thing where everybody will be done kind of with it by noon to let's build it up all day uh, with these, you know, little hints and droplets along yeah. the line.
0: I'll follow the breadcrumbs here, and I'll put together the schedule before it's released at 7 o'clock tonight. And no one ever gets the full 17, right? You know, they they get bits and And again, it comes out in such such different ways. Uh, you know, the, the Cowboys play Arizona. They're at Arizona in week three. That didn't come out through... I mean, I guess ultimately it came out through the media. But that came out because... Rather than wait till seven, the Cardinals sent their season ticket holders what the what the home schedule was before the release at seven. So one of the season ticket holders put it out on social media and said, well, hey, look, you know, they're going to play the Cowboys in week three. And then so then someone in the media who happened to follow that or was retweeted is going, oh, well, look, so that's how Arizona in week three came out. It wasn't. So it wasn't even a media release. It was from the club releasing some information to its most valued consumers ahead of the 7 o'clock that evening. So that, now you're seeing these sort of, of fissures and fractures and, and leaks come out uh, every year in the draft. I mean, in, in the TV schedule.
2: So I've got one question for both of you guys. Kevin, I don't know if you've got the schedule in front of you, but – yeah. Um, you look at the schedule, what what stands out now for you about the construction of the schedule, both good and bad for the Cowboys?
1: Well, I, I think David probably speaks to that better than I do. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting that, uh, that y- you know, if you look at the first four or five games, I, I think there's really an opportunity here for the Cowboys to, you know, depending how something's worked out, the first four games are pretty good skate. I mean, if, if the Cowboys are really playing like they should be playing, they should be 4-0 going into that game against the 49ers on October the 8th. Uh, and, um, you know, that's, I think that's a kind of a defining point of the season, isn't it, David? I mean, if you can if you can finally beat the the 49ers, uh, who have just been there uh, uh, like a death match with them every time they played them, it just uh, killed their hopes pretty much. Uh, if they can beat the 49ers on uh, in week five, then I think they've got a real chance to prove that this team has taken a step up. If they lose to the 49ers, I think that that all the the, the hot seat and everything else on Mike McCarthy, especially since he's going to be the offensive coordinator, this year, he's going to be calling the place. I think that all the things start to,
0: to uh, work against them in the other direction. Sure. I, I, you know, the rivalry with Philly in those two games in my mind are still at the top of the list for where they are. And and those are the two best teams in the division. And arguably they'll be fighting for the best record in the conference. So those two games I think are, you know, you pencil them in immediately because of the rivalry and where those team teams are. But I throw San Francisco in there for Dallas as well. Uh, they're the team that's eliminated Dallas in the postseason the past two years um they really were more physical with them they they kind of knocked them around uh you saw in this draft they they went with some more physical players and they they know what they need to do and how to combat that uh and and that's that's their early barometer measuring stick
2: uh, well you do see that, overall, right? I'm you sorry do, you do see that david in that like if they go 4 and 0 and go into that 49ers game and lose the level of Teeth, we know what the level of teeth gnashing is after every Cowboy la- loss is. But if they do lose to the 49ers there, that is going to ramp up the Mike McCarthy hot seat talk really to steroid levels. Yes? Sure. And, and, it's going to be the and, same thing over and over. They can't beat the 49ers.
0: Well, and, and I think there is – look, this team is coming off back-to-back 12-5 back and five seasons but there's still an attitude because we're, you're now, what, 26, 27 years and counting about getting past the divisional round where it's, okay, don't talk to me about the regular season. Wake me up when the postseason begins. And so if you lose in week five to the team that eliminated you from the postseason the past two years, now suddenly you're down on the po- on the regular season, right? you know, it's harder to build that sort of confidence to instill and make people believe, well, this year is going to be different. You have to show, and it's not just about showing the fans, it's about showing themselves that this year is going to be different. And if you come back and lose to San Francisco, who will probably still have questions at quarterback at that point, um, you know, with the injuries they've had there. um, Yeah, I think then you just go, oh my gosh, we still have a long way to go to get back. And, you know, the, the season could unfold a little bit differently. Overall on the schedule, I would say, you know, this is the year where they have nine road games, not eight. Uh, and every team faces that. It just alternates every other year. Six of the nine road games are against teams that were in the playoffs last year. Uh, the winning percentage of the teams they face on the road uh, going into the season is fifty-five-seven-nine. Uh, which is as difficult of a road schedule as any team in the league. And you go back to last year, Dallas only lost five games in the regular season. Four of them came on the road. They were four and four on the road. So this team needs to be much better on the road than it was last season, or they're not going to be able to to duplicate that that 12 and five.
1: You know, here's the other issue for I think that the Cowboys are going to be facing here. Is that all right. So we're seeing the stars that they're going to make at least the Western Conference Finals here, uh, and, yeah. and who knows, they may go to the Stanley Cup Finals. The, the Mavericks went to the Western Conference Finals last, last year. year, and now the Rangers are winning. Uh, and if the Rangers keep this up, and who knows where this goes, if they get into the postseason and do anything, uh, then then that means that everybody in the market is is doing better than than the Cowboys have done for 25 years. Right. So uh, that's that's going to bring up a lot more pressure on the Cowboys as well. And I I think one of the things that, uh, David, I want want quickly to talk about because he just had the little rookie orientation uh, this last week. Uh, But before we get to that point, uh, I want to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, do you feel like there's enough leadership on this team? Because to me, when you're when you're not winning on the road, that just speaks to leadership. Uh, anybody can, if you're good, anybody can win at home, you know, with that home field advantage. When you go on the road, I'm expecting somebody to step up and say, come on, man, let's play. Let's, let's, let's play like, uh, like we're supposed to play here. Let's, let's not fold under the pressure here and playing on the road.
0: Yeah. I, and let's take it one more. Let's, who won some of those road games last year? Cooper rush. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And and this is that's why you see this bobbing cork effect in the NFL where, where teams the, the top teams will go down the next year and then come back. It's because of the schedule. If you're at the top, you get a more difficult schedule, uh, but if you really are built to win, you can handle that schedule. And Dallas was a very good road team the year before, was not a good road team last year. So we've seen both versions uh, under Mike McCarthy. And it's interesting. In fact, I, I really think a large part of them breaking through to 12-5 and five two years ago was because they were such a good team on the road. Last year, it's because they defended their home field much better than they did the year before. So they've kind of gone about it both ways. Uh, but they're going to have to be a better road team this year than they were last year.
2: No question about it.
0: So right. about uh, the ro-
2: uh, on-the-road team thing – that stretch weeks 14 15 16 when they play Philadelphia at home and then go the go Buffalo Miami what's that how do you see that impacting the season guys
0: well to me that's interesting because really you know that is the only stretch going starting that philly is that third of three straight home games that's that's the really that's the only homestand this team has all year Every other home game is followed by a road game. So the fact they get three straight at home from Thanksgiving through Philadelphia, the fact they get Philadelphia at home after their only prolonged home stretch of the year before going on the road, I, I think helps them. But, but you're exactly right. Uh, and this team has gotten better in December in recent years, which we've, we've pointed to. They have not done. They faded. But under Mike McCarthy, they have played well in December but their december schedule this year is philadelphia at buffalo at miami home versus detroit who is also in the in the playoff conversation for this year uh that that is a very very difficult december
2: so before we get out of here wins for what's your after taking a look at the schedule what's your over under on wins kevin Wow, you're
1: already, already asking me for that projection? Holy cow. It's okay. never too early for predictions, Kevin. All right, I'm going to say I I I think this is an improved team I, and I know it is a tougher schedule. Uh I'm going to say 13 and 4.
2: So you're going to give them a, 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 a one I'm more win. Them a win. One
0: more win, yeah. Kevin does not know what he's talking about. <laughs> Good guess. 13 well, and 4. God. You got to bring that up. So uh, and and to someone else who doesn't know what he's talking about i'll go with 11 and 6
2: 11 and 6 wow i i would i would if i was steadying the over under i would set it at 11 and a half yeah i mean i think that's just that's right where it is you know that i think last year they did a good job of not really losing games that that, that were trap games um they've got a couple of you know back to back road trips that i think you know that that back to back to the west coast is that can be a challenge, right? Back to back weeks on the West Coast, the back to back road trip, back to back games in December on the road. But yeah, they two very get- different
0: environments, right? At yep. Buffalo than at Miami.
2: But I haven't looked at what Vegas has set as as an over under early, but I would bet that it's, it's 11 and a half.
1: So what are you saying, Evan? What are you, what are you giving? Them? I think Vegas actually did nine, nine and a half. Which I found since you're
2: at thirteen and David's at, at eleven? I'll go with twelve and say that they'll have a third straight twelve and five year because we know the Cowboys are nothing if not consistent. It's either eight and eight or twelve and five. Wow, twelve and five. Well, that's that's
1: who would have thought that they would even be that good these days? I don't know. I don't. Uh, it does. It doesn't. That's the thing about the Cowboys now. They they have put together two good seasons back to back, two good regular seasons, obviously back to back,
0: and then first time, the first time winning seasons back to back in fourteen years.
1: Yeah, and, and 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 yet, do you really feel like that the fans feel like this is all good? Do you think that fans feel really comfortable and excited about the Cowboys? I, I, I they're not going yeah. to
0: until they get past the divisional round. It's just,
2: no, 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 not yeah. it's happen. just one more year added on to that. Uh, That's the last that emotional World hurdle
0: church. until the, until they clear that emotional hurdle.
2: No. And no, you, I don't think so either. When you lose to your nemesis in the playoffs in back-to-back years, right? That only—I mean, it's the the stress points for adding to cowboy fans' mo- woes or their misery. I, I think the last few years have just ramped up. Good seasons, losses in the playoffs to their to their nemesis, um, and now you've still got the. What are we? Twenty-five years? Twenty-six. 20, 26, Twenty-six years without pe- getting past the divisional round. So. Uh,
1: well, and, and then you look at the fact that the Eagles get to the Super Bowl, you know, with a quarterback that, you know, two years ago, everybody would have thought, uh, eh, you know, Jalen Hurts, nothing. And, and, now, and now he's got a $55 million a year contract. And uh, a master's degree. And a master's degree. Good for uh, him. Good for Jalen Hurts. Congratulations to Jalen Hurts for that. Yeah, just it, it really is kind of an unprecedented time it really feels more like and I wasn't here then, but it does feel like the times back in the Danny White days, right? When they're getting to the to the NFC championship games, but they're not getting to the Super Bowl. And you know, and and that and, and you know, of course I think if you could get to the NFC championship game now, the you know, Cowboys fans, most of them would say, Hey, super, you know. So it hasn't quite gone back up to that level, but it it, it is it is approaching that. Uh, where where being really good is just not good enough. Uh, the Cowboys fans are gonna have to do better.
2: Than no, that. this is a team that's always gonna be judged by playoff performance, never regular season record. No.
1: All right, that's gonna do it for our uh, Cowboys segment as well. We we would have loved to have talked about talking about. We would have loved to okay. talk about the uh, the Mavericks uh, draft lottery uh, as we're taping this on Tuesday mornings. It's Tuesday night, uh, and find out whether the Mavericks either get to even keep their first round pick. Uh, or if they get the, they win the Wimbanyama uh, sweepstakes. Uh,
2: so How can we you say Wimbanyama and it. not talking? <laughs>
1: <What>? <laughs> because because I am a master uh, elocutionist. That's why. <laughs> you don't even know what an elocutionist is. Uh, so, yeah. I'm in favor of your like
2: elocution. That. Yeah, thank you.
1: Yeah, you. Oh, you know what I I, uh, I I think that this would be the the one thing. As I was I was thinking about uh, uh, people were when that last series in the Mavericks are playing and, and uh, Greg Popovich all of a sudden decided to go off about guns and I was just not prepared for that uh, when he when he did that. But you know the the question had been asked during that little press conference before that happened. Hey, are you are you coming back? You know, and uh, because remember when. Uh, Popovich would always say, oh, I'm, when when Timmy's out, I'm out. That's it. Well, Timmy's gone. Timmy's long gone. I think he's really counting on this one thing. I think he's thinking this is my last shot at a, at a, a dynasty uh, is that if I could get him, and of course the Spurs have a really good shot, Uh, along with the Rockets. Uh, So uh, we'll see whether that happens or not for him. Uh, I'm I'm a Greg Popovich fan, so uh, if that's what he wants, I'm all for it too. All right, that's going to do it for everybody in here. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. We will be able to talk about the Mavericks and how they do at that point, and maybe we'll even have somebody in here to talk a little bit of hockey with us. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.